The following message was given by Matt Mason at the 2018 Worship God Conference held in Frisco, Texas. So good to be here. Thank you all for having me. I, uh, I love this conference, and I've loved this conference for many years. And so as a worship pastor, it was an automatic thing. As soon as I knew the date for next Worship God Conference, I marked it on the calendar and came every year from 1999 all the way up until uh, I transitioned into senior pastor. And so it's just a joy to be at this conference. And uh, I have been built up in my faith through relationships here and seminars. I was talking to Dr. Don Whitney on the way over and just telling him how much I appreciate hearing his session, his seminar years ago, totally reformed my outlook on how we take God's word and pray it back to him. So uh, this conference has been a rich gift of God's grace to me and this brother, Bob, and, and his family have been gifts of grace in my life. And now he's He's sort of starting over with the next generation of Masons, <laughs> trying to get it right the second time, um, and pouring into my son. So it's just a privilege. It is such a privilege to be here. And my, I just immensely respect you all. I know that, that you wouldn't be here if you didn't love the church. And so we're friends. <laughs> I love the church, and I'm so grateful for the work that you do. I know some of the effort and labor that goes into your tasks and assignments in your local church, whether you're a pastor, you're preaching, or you're leading worship, or you're tech, or playing instruments up here, and just all the things that go into that, and all the passion that represents for, for Jesus and your love for his people. So it's just a pure privilege to get to be here. So thank you for this opportunity. Go ahead and turn in your Bible, if you would, to Psalm 48. Psalm 48. So as a young boy, the first books in the Bible that I ever loved were Psalms and Revelation. Psalms because I knew some of the words, I recognized some of the words that I was reading in the book of Psalms from things that we were singing on Sundays, just simple songs that were just lifted straight out of the book of Psalms, so I kind of recognized that. Revelation, I loved it because crazy animals and war, and the, so I still love it for those reasons, but more, and I think we're going to see that there's, there's so much richness. Every time I read the Psalms and I go on year after year engaging with God in this wonderful book and seeing layer after layer of the richness of what God has given us in his word to train us with a vocabulary of faith. And so here we go in uh, Psalm 48. We're going to read this text together in just a second. If you, if you love the church of Jesus Christ, you have to love Psalm 48 because this psalm is all about the church. It is a portrait, if you will, it's a portrait of the church. So with that, by way of introduction, go ahead and follow along as I read Psalm 48, beginning in verse 1. Great is the Lord, and greatly to be praised in the city of our God. His holy mountain, beautiful in elevation, is the joy of all the earth. Mount Zion in the far north, the city of the great king. Within her citadels, God has made himself known as a fortress. For behold, the kings assembled, they came on together. As soon as they saw it, they were astounded, they were in panic. They took to flight, trembling took hold of them there, anguish as of a woman in labor. By the east wind you shattered the ships of Tarshish. As we have heard, so we have seen the city of the Lord of hosts in the city of our God, which God will establish forever. We have thought 
on your steadfast love, O God, in the midst of your temple. As your name, O God, so your praise reaches to the ends of the earth. Your right hand is filled with righteousness. Let Mount Zion be glad. Let the daughters of Judah rejoice because of your judgments. Walk about Zion. Go around her, number her towers, consider well her ramparts, go through her citadels, that you may tell the next generation that this is God, our God forever and ever. He will guide us forever. Let's pray. Oh God, we humble ourselves before you we want to hear your word we want to respond to your self-revelation in this text show us your glory here may we respond in ways that are fitting in ways that make much of you the God who has saved us in ways that strengthen the churches that we represent. Oh, do good to your people in our time here tonight, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Here's, I think, a challenge for us, is that as as we serve in our local church context, there is the ordinary is intrusive, right? We, we, we're confronted with all the average, we're confronted with all the things that aren't right, even the dysfunction in some of our churches. Or it's just all around us, right? You walk into your building and things aren't right. Like it's, you've seen churches on websites and they've got that vibey thing happening and you just kind of don't have any vibe at your church building or in your the place where you worship, right? There's that ding on the wall that's been there since the, the the prop fell over in VBS 13 years ago, right? You pass that ding every week on your way up up front to lead in worship, right? There's just stuff that's that's familiar, but you wish it wasn't there, right? There's maybe a flickering light. It's not a strobe, it's a flicker. It's it's an accident, right? And it just didn't make it into the, the budget for the maintenance thing and the electrical issue that's up there. It's just normal things intrude on us and we, we fail to see the glory of what God has designed in this thing called the local church and the local church gathering. And you even think about our gatherings. The gatherings feel so often, don't they, normal. Sometimes the sermons just feel too long or we don't feel engaged maybe from time to time. It seems like in every church I've ever been a part of, there's, there's that person who always sings the note longer than everybody else when everybody else has stopped, right? I think it's just the same person who just kind of travels around, right? <laughs> I, when, I, when I moved from New Orleans and got to Birmingham and we started singing and then everybody stopped and there was someone still singing the note, I'm like, she followed me. Like, <laughs> it's just normal intrudes on us. We see these things, they're all around us. The, the monitor situation in your church just can't be fixed, right? Like you've hired NASA and they've come in and they, they, can't, figure this, they can't figure this out. It's just average is all around us. And, and then there are the more substantive burdens. So you had to step somebody off the team. A close friend of yours who's been a gift of grace in your life 
left the church. Maybe they were just relocating. Maybe there was some issue and now there's tension in that relationship and just things aren't the same anymore. All kinds of, maybe it's a personal issue in your own life. You're walking through great trials or you're spiritually dry or maybe even depressed. And the last thing you want to do when you wake up on Sunday mornings is plug in your instrument and do it again, right? Or, or preach the sermon again or lead the rehearsal again. I'm just tired of this. That sort of stuff just intrudes on us. To, to people bombarded by a sense of all that is average and below average and even dysfunctional about the church, Psalm 48. There we go. <laughs> There's that flickering light thing we were talking about just a moment. As if timed. Let me say that again. To people bombarded by a sense of all that is average, below average, and even dysfunctional about the church, Psalm 48 lifts our gaze to see something else, namely God's glory in the church. God's delight to reside among his people, to inhabit the praises of ordinary believers with average voices, average gifts, average buildings, average sermons, and yet he is somehow miraculously here, faithfully present week after week after week. And this song has a clear theme. Bob probably doesn't remember this given how many songs he shoots down in a given year, but years ago, I sent a song of mine to Bob. <laughs> and I sent the, the lyrics, and I thought he was going to be amazed. And the short story is he wasn't. Yeah, <laughs> he wasn't amazed. And uh, he said a couple of encouraging things on his way to asking a question. And, and here's the question. In, this light show is not planned. That's right. <laughs> here's the question that he asked at the end of his email. Five words, simple, clarifying question. Matt. What is this song about? <laughs> Not so with Psalm 48. This, this songwriter knows what this song is about, and he makes it very clear. Our text doesn't progressively give us the main idea. It states it right up front in verse 1. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised in the city of our God. And you come to the end, and in case you missed it, the very last verse reads this way. Tell the next generation, this is God, our God forever and ever. He will guide us forever. He knows what his song is about. It's about God's glory residing among God's people. God's glory revealed in transforming ways among his gathered people. This, this glory-revealing activity that is going on here in Psalm 48, it leads to three awesome realities. And the first one is this. We know the Lord. We know the Lord. Verse 1, great is the Lord and greatly to be praised in the city of our God. His holy mountain, beautiful in elevation, is the joy of all the earth. Mount Zion in the far north, the city of the great king. Within her citadels, God has made himself known as a fortress. It, this psalm doesn't simply tell us that God is great. It tells us a unique location in which he reveals his greatness. It doesn't just simply say great is the Lord and greatly to be praised period. It tells you where he's great. 
and specifically in this psalm, where he's great is in the city of our God. And it's using these various metaphors for the gathering of God's people, multiple metaphors. So verse one, in the city of our God. Verse one, in his holy mountain. Verse two, in the city of the great king. Verse two, on Mount Zion. So Jerusalem was, was a city that was surrounded by valleys on three sides. It was literally, quite literally, a city set on a hill. Speaks of Mount Zion here. As beautiful in elevation, the joy of the whole earth. And we used to sing a song growing up in the church that I grew up in, and it just went, we're marching to Zion. It's kind of three, four, beautiful, beautiful Zion. We're marching onward to Zion, that beautiful city of God. And we would sing it over and over 20 times and we key change three or four times and we just sing round and round and round. And as a kid, sometimes I just wondered, okay, sounds awesome. Where is Zion? <laughs> and why are we marching there? Right? Because it, it doesn't necessarily stop to explain what's going on there. I mean, there are rides, like as a kid processing some of this stuff. What's, what's the deal with Zion? <laughs> Here's the deal with Zion, verse three. Within her citadels, God has made himself known as a fortress. In other words, the psalmist is not ultimately concerned with the topography of Jerusalem. (laughs) He's not concerned with matters of altitude of the city, beautiful in elevation of the joy of the earth. He's concerned with who resides in Mount Zion. It's God. He's revealing himself. He's making himself known. Known in what capacity? I love those words. Known as a fortress. You know, you got a room full of people every single Sunday who need refuge. Some of them know it, some of them don't, but all of them need refuge. All of them need to know God as a fortress. But by the way, it's not a stretch to connect the Jerusalem Zion language of Psalm 48 to New Testament church gatherings. One, because he's going to connect it to gatherings of worship in verse 9. But second, because in the book of Hebrews, the New Testament book of Hebrews, takes phrases from this psalm, Psalm 48, and applies them to church gatherings, New Covenant church gatherings. He says in the New Testament, in the book of Hebrews, to the New Covenant church comprised of both Jews and Gentiles, when you gather, quote, you, the church, you have come to Mount Zion to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. This passage testifies, friends, there is a greatness and there is a glory that God uniquely reveals to and among his people, to and among his church. In a real sense, this is the key mark, the distinguishing factor, what makes the church the church. John summed up the disciples' encounter with the incarnate Jesus by saying, John 1.14, we beheld his glory. That's how he speaks of it. Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 3 describes the initial moment of a saving relationship with Jesus Christ as an unveiling by which our souls see God's glory in the face of Jesus Christ. Look, we were were made to see and to be satisfied with the glory of God. 
We are hardwired for that. You'll never find. That's why everything else is a broken cistern. It holds no water. It has no, no sticky, hope-giving power. We were designed to know satisfaction only by seeing the glorious God who made us. Author Sam Storms, he breaks it down for us when he writes these words. That sinful habit that you struggle with daily, that low-grade addiction that keeps you in the throes of guilt and shame, that inability to walk with consistency in the things you know please God. So we're all listening, right? Because we're all there. All of that stuff, he says, ultimately will only be overcome when your heart, soul, mind, spirit, and will are captivated by the majesty, mercy, splendor, beauty, and magnificence of who God is and what he has done. You think about this, in the West, in the church in the West, we are so tempted to give our people something different than a fresh sighting of the glory of God. And, and wherever we follow that temptation, our people will shrivel because they were designed for nothing less than this. John Piper writes these words, the irony of our human condition is that God has put us within sight of the Himalayas of his glory in Jesus Christ but we have chosen to pull down the shades of our chalet and show slides of Buck Hill. Can we just say here and now, no Buck Hill slides in our churches, that we won't settle for anything less than seeing the glory of God shining out from his word, revealed to his people by his spirit, illuminated in the story of the gospel. Look, gathered worship is not a show. It is not a concert. Gathered worship is a time for God's people and others who want to come in and listen in to engage with God. That's the privilege that we have to hear him speak to us, to address us. The holy God addresses us, his people, through scripture. It's our chance to, to extol him, to praise him for his excellent greatness. It's our chance to run to him in desperate prayer to lean on him, to delight in the good news of what he's done through Jesus Christ and saving us through his cross and his resurrection to save us from powers too strong for us. That's what we do when we gather together. We know the Lord. Second, we dwell securely. We dwell securely. Look at verse three. We'll pick it up from verse three. Within her citadels, God has made himself known as a fortress. And now he tells a story. For behold... He's reaching back into history. The kings assembled. They came on together. As soon as they saw it, they were astounded. They were in panic. They took to flight. Trembling took hold of them there. Anguish as of a woman in labor. And then there's this east wind that shatters the ships, right? In verse 8, as we have heard, so we've seen in the city of the Lord of hosts, in the city of our God, which God will establish forever. So not sure exactly what historical event this is referencing. There were, sadly, a number of candidates in the Old Testament that could have applied to a situation that was this sideways and this difficult for Israel. But obviously, the scenario is basically this. Israel's in trouble, 
and she's way over her head. There's no way out for her given the weapons that she has, the size of the army. We don't have a chance on our own apart from the grace of God. And yet in two verses here, there's this rapid succession of verbs that indicate a sudden and dramatic overthrow. So you see in verse four and five, just these these punchy verbs, assembled, came on together, saw it, astounded, in panic, took to flight. One scholar compared it to Caesar's Vini Vidi Vici, I came, I saw, I conquered, just in these really rapid succession of verbs saying, I got it done. And God prevails and triumphs over enemies that were too strong for his people. Here's the truth that we sing every Sunday in one way or another, I hope, it's this. Our rescue doesn't come from the strength of man. It comes from the intervention of God comes from the intervention of God. You see this reference to the east wind in verse seven? That, that east wind is legendary in the Old Testament. Won't have time to give a full biblical resume, but that east wind has some serious skill. And here's what it gets done. It was the east wind in Exodus chapter 10 that brought the locust. It was the east wind in Exodus 14 that divided the Red Sea. In Hosea chapter 13, verse 15, it's prophesied that God will bring down the proud. And how is he gonna do it? Hosea 13, 15, though he may flourish among his brothers, the east wind, here he comes, The east wind, the wind of the Lord shall come and it shall strip his treasury of every precious thing. East wind is God's executive agent. It it gets business done in his world. It administers justice in an evil world. Bear in mind, this, this east wind, this God's judgment language here is sobering for those who reject the Lord. Our God is not safe for those who live in high-handed rebellion against his authority. He's king. He doesn't negotiate the terms of his kingship. He's Lord. You take him on his own terms or you perish. That, that's the way it is. He's a holy, awesome God. I heard, I can't remember the name of the theologian who said it this way. He said, hell is eternity in the presence of God and heaven is eternity in the presence of God with a mediator. You just think about that. Hebrews says it's, it's a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. It doesn't say to fall out of the hands. To fall into the hands of a living God is terrifying. And yet this holy God offers us wonder of wonders. The surprise twist ending nobody expected after Genesis 3.15 right before it, is that there would be terms of clemency offered to a sinful world that held up its fist against God. There's a way of salvation in our sinful condition. God's presence is a fearful thing because he's holy. The glory of the good news that we celebrate each Sunday is if we turn and trust in Christ, the one who has provided our salvation, fully accomplished our salvation, what he's done on the cross and in his resurrection. If we turn and trust him, there is full forgiveness, eternal life, adoption into his forever family, death defeated, reconciled to God forever. How can a holy God be both true to his own just and holy character and simultaneously a haven for sinners? And the only answer to that question is the gospel, the cross of Jesus Christ. This text ultimately points to the gospel. The the heart of the gospel is that God has acted in Christ to rescue us from our greatest enemies. 
sin and death and Satan because of the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. Oh, this is such good news. Because of the finished work of Christ on the cross, the one whom we ought to fear has become to us a fortress. He, the holy God, is our refuge. What, What a mystery. This God is for us. Christian friend, his his sovereignty, his power, his goodness are pressed into the service of your final salvation. All of that at the disposal of our final salvation. So when pagan kings come together here in verse 4 or back in Psalm chapter 2 or forward in Revelation chapter 17 verse 13, the pagan kings, all coalition of armies coming together to overthrow God's people, the outcome isn't a nail-biter. We know what's going to happen next because God is sovereign. He sits in the heavens in Psalm 2 laughing. It's an awesome thing. You know, when our kids were little, uh, we would spend every night for several years reading a brief passage in the Bible, spending a little time praying, and then we would review something from the Westminster Shorter Catechism. So they had kind of a modern, updated version, book called Training Hearts, Teaching Minds by Star Mead. And so we would read the Westminster Shorter, and I would create some songs so that we could sing it and memorize various things. And, and so the Westminster Shorter Catechism, written in the 1640s, written so that uh, people who were largely unfamiliar with the Bible, they had just practically received them recently. And so it's to acquaint them with what are the big ideas? How do we understand? How do we put the Bible together? Who is God? What is the Trinity? What's the chief end of man, right? It's answering these questions in pithy, memorable ways and in ways that are just replete with biblical references, to help people understand what, what the message of the Bible is. And so we were, we were tracking through some of those things. A few years later, I was in a car with a, a minister, and he was going on and on talking about how the Heidelberg Catechism was more excellent than the Westminster Catechism, and I couldn't let the Westminster go down like that, so we, you know, we started to have a conversation back and forth, and it was just a friendly debate on our way back to the hotel. And the problem was I had nowhere to go because I had never read the Heidelberg. So the first thing I did when I got back to the hotel room is Google search Heidelberg Catechism, pulled it up, and this is the first thing that I read. What is your only comfort in life and death? Answer, that I am not my own, but belong with body and soul, both in life and in death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood and has set me free from all the power of the devil. He also preserves me in such a way that without the will of my heavenly Father, not a hair can fall from my head. Indeed, all things must work together for my salvation. Therefore, by his Holy Spirit, he also assures me of eternal life and makes me heartily willing and ready from now on to live for him. And I looked down and I thought, it's a tie. Uh, <laughs> so that's not bad. That's, that's a great way to start understanding the central message of God's word. Look, you think about this as it relates to our churches and the people that we get the privilege of serving Sunday after Sunday. There is, there is not a person in the room on Sunday who doesn't desperately need to hear the gospel. Starting with you. (laughs) 
starting with me, me first. So I'm sitting down here just a moment ago, and sometimes I just stop. I stop singing just to listen to you singing it into my ears. Sing truth to my soul. I'm listening to you, admonishing me, singing me deeper into the truth of the gospel. Unbelievers need to hear it who stroll in, believers need to hear it again, Christians who are suffering need to hear it, right, to be reminded again and again, this God is for us in Christ. He has purchased our salvation. He will never leave us or forsake us. Every Sunday, there are brothers and sisters who come to our gatherings feeling verse four, the king's assembling, (laughs) coming on together, right? Everything in the world seems trained on their downfall, purposed on their downfall. And, and that's what they're feeling walking in. The great Puritan, Richard Sibbs, he speaks into a moment just like that when he says this. What reassuring words these are. Christ will not leave us till he has made us like himself. All glorious within and without and presented us blameless before his father. What a comfort this is in our conflicts with our unruly hearts that it shall not always be thus. Let us strive a little while and we shall be happy forever. Let us think when we are troubled with our sins that Christ has this in charge from his father that he shall not quench the smoking flax until he has subdued all. This puts a shield into our hands to beat back all the fiery darts of the wicked. What we do then on Sundays is we direct the eyes of everyone who's in the room up and out. Every Sunday, we never tire. Up and out. It's up and out again. Glad you're here this morning. We're going to look up and out this morning to see glory to see God, to know him as a refuge. We know the Lord, we dwell securely. Number three, he makes us glad. He makes us glad. Verse nine. We have thought on your steadfast love, O God, in the midst of your temple. As your name, O God, so your praise reaches to the end of the earth. Your right hand is filled with righteousness. Let Mount Zion be glad. Let the daughters of Judah rejoice because of your judgment. So there's, there's joy in Zion in verse 11. And upstream from that, what do you find? You find the people thinking in verse 9 on the steadfast love of the Lord. Upstream of the gladness of God's people is the gospel, right? We've thought, verse 9, on your steadfast love, O God, in the midst of your temple. That theme just is recurring throughout the entire Old Testament in massive pivotal moments and times where you sort of hear the background track of the praise of God's people just exploding out from the pages of Scripture. And so often you tune in, you dial in, and you find out what's the central theme that they're singing about in Second Chronicles chapter 5 when the Ark of the Covenant is being brought to the newly completed Temple of Solomon. And it zooms in and it tells you what were they singing. It gives you all the pomp and circumstance, all the horns, all the names of the people, Jeduthun and Haman and, all, and so on and so forth. And then it says, here's what we were singing that day. Quote, For he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. You read Psalm 106, Psalm 107. These are are extended narratives that tell the entire story of the Old Testament. 
big, long psalms that tell you the whole story of God and his people and what's the heading at the top of both of those narratives. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. In other words, you want an explanation for all the mess we've seen back here and the fact that we're still alive. His steadfast love endures forever. There's a sense in which you and I could sit down for hours and tell each other stories of the mercies that we've experienced and all the failures that we've brought and contributed to our sin and the mess that we are. And the heading over your life and my life could be the exact same thing. His steadfast love is the only explanation only explanation and for all the differences between worship in Solomon's time and worship in the 21st century the central theme of corporate worship hasn't changed in 3,000 years we still gather around the steadfast love of the Lord I wonder if you've ever seen one of the great waterfalls of the world. So maybe you've been to Niagara, maybe you've been to Victoria Falls. I went to Niagara Falls when I was in college. I haven't been there since, but I remember it like it was yesterday. I just, just stood there just watching this, the incredible power of this water just pouring over the shelf. And I just was spellbound. And I'm imagining, this is probably a pathology, but I'm, whenever I'm in a situation like that, I imagine that I couldn't survive this. Like I imagine falling into that or falling off that mountain. It's beautiful, but I imagine falling off of it. Anyway, so I'm imagining, I'm looking at the Niagara Falls and I'm imagining if I fell in right now, where would I, what would I grab to keep from going under? I'm just picturing some of that. I, I think if there is anything in nature that deserves the word relentless, it's gotta be Niagara Falls. It, it just, it's just such a raging force just pouring over and it, here in God's word, if there's anything that is relentless, it is the love of God. And if you want to see it, you can go to a number of places. One of the, one of the great ones is Romans chapter 8, where you just see it just bursting forth from Calvary, the almighty flow of God's love. And you, you watch that going on. You see that, the glory of the cross and what God has done, not sparing his own son, but delivering him over for us all. And just this, this flood of God's mighty love toward his covenant people. And you get too close and it'll pull you in and it'll drag you right over the ledge and it'll be great. <laughs> Told our people, that's what I, that's really how I think of preaching every Sunday. I want to intentionally jump in and grab your ankles on the way over so that we just go into an absolute free fall into the grace of God every Sunday. One of the most formative experiences in my life has been gathering every Sunday from as early as I can remember celebrating the truth that God's steadfast love endures forever. Christian friend, we don't we don't come together in worship to boast about how steadfastly we have loved God. Now, that is a depressing song. <laughs> yes, God is at work in us. Yes, he's changing us. But, but let's be real. Our love for God has a high tide and a low tide every day of our lives. We sin every day in thought, word, and action. I don't want the central theme of our Sunday morning singing to be about my steadfast love for God. That makes me lower my head, not lift my head. 
the glory of the church is we have a God who has shown us steadfast love. His mercies are never failing. The church thinks on his steadfast love. In verse 11, here comes the joy. Let Mount Zion rejoice. One of my favorite old school Sovereign Grace songs has this line in it. Your heart, your passion to give all nations gladness and joy in Jesus Christ. I, I just love thinking about that. What do we have as the church gathers? Here's what we have. Gladness and joy in Jesus Christ. What do we have for the nations? Gladness and joy in Jesus Christ. Let Mount Zion be glad. Let the daughters of Jerusalem rejoice. When unbelievers come into your gathering, into your worship gathering, is there any chance that they come away saying, these people sang as if they had joy in God that wasn't tethered to their circumstances. They sang, it was almost as though someone were holding them up. They sang as if they had hope that was beyond this world. I still don't believe in God, but they do. And you could see it. It was evident. There was a kind of effusiveness, a radiance about them. Look, every Sunday is a gospel renewal ceremony where we sing each other firm in the faith, where we sing each other rooted in Christ, where we remember his death and resurrection. There's almost an organic connection between Sunday worship gatherings and the resurrection. Right, you think about that. The resurrection was the Sunday that launched a thousand Sundays. And they've been genetically related ever since. The resurrection never doesn't leave its mark on the gathering of the believers. In a sense, you think about the Holy Spirit's brooding over the ministry of the gospel in our local churches in order to make dead things live. And he loves, it's his favorite thing to do on Sunday. He commits to be there among his gathered people to make dead things live. I love these closing verses, verse 12. Walk about Zion, go around her, number her towers, consider well her ramparts, go through her citadels. That you, so there's a purpose of all this walking, (laughs) that you may tell the next generation, this is God. Our God forever and ever. He will guide us forever. This psalm says, walk around the city. Put your hand on the walls that surround Jerusalem. Put your hand on every tower and think about all that God has done in this place. Some scholars believe that this psalm would have been utilized during a ritual procession where the people actually walked through the city of Jerusalem and did this. They paraded through the city and remembered God's grace among his people. And for us, there are graces from God that are right under our noses right under our nose, things that God is doing every Sunday as we gather that keep your faith alive. You're still breathing because he has been depositing grace and nutrients so that your soul is maintained in grace. I I could easily be one of those individuals who hated church gatherings. The greatest loss in my life happened in a worship gathering. My dad was preaching in 1988 on Palm Sunday 
And in the middle of the sermon, he had a heart attack and died on the spot. And the church went into total pandemonium and people were running down and calling for an ambulance and pumping his chest and a member jumped over the pew and was shielding my eyes. Then the entire church drove, it was a small church, probably 60, 70 people, everybody drove over to the hospital to hear and they were right there with us when the doctor said there's nothing we can do. He was 45 years old, I'm 43 now. Many of my dad's family members, his siblings apostatized from the faith after his death. But, but here's, here's why my mom will always be a hero of faith to me. Because seven days after dad died, she walked her three children into that same little corrugated metal building on Pontchartrain Boulevard. And I sat in that same pew where I was seven days before. And she walked right over the spot where dad fell. And she got right back on the organ. And she pulled the mic close. And she sang of the faithfulness of God. And, and, and I, I'll confess, I went through a period where there was, there was so much boiling anger beneath the surface. I didn't let it show through, I don't think, but, but it was there. I was angry. But we kept singing of the steadfast love of the Lord, Sunday after Sunday, and, and the singing wore down my defenses. Sister Melinda Taylor, my dad loved to just spontaneously call Sister Melinda Taylor, come on up and just sing that favorite song. And she would come up and sing, Mom would tune her up on the Hammond B3 organ and she would sing and she, she sang before he died, she sang those same songs after he died. One of her songs was, I have hope when troubles come my way. I have hope since Jesus has come to stay. I have hope when things are not well with me, I have hope. It's a beautiful hope that sets me free. If someone can understand why a person like me would hate to walk into a church gathering and hear people singing, but that person would have no idea what the real story is. And the real story is this. Within her citadels, God made himself known as a fortress. That's my story. Psalm 48 came up off the page, reached up and grabbed me, saw truth, saw the glory of God. My brothers and my sisters in that congregation sang me back to life. We're called to number the towers. That language, go through her citadels. Tell the next generation. That's what that generation above me was saying to me, Matt, every Sunday, singing truth into my soul. Telling the next generation, this is God. We know him right here. There's no better place to be. You stay right here. Our God forever and ever. This God will guide us forever. Friends, don't be short-sighted in your evaluation of what God is doing when your local church gathers. Here's, here's the story that's playing out every Sunday underneath all the intrusive normality and sub-average, right? Here's the story. God is bringing us near so that we might know his glory. God is securing a place for us within the walls of salvation. God, through the working of his spirit and the ministry of his word, is making himself known to us as a fortress Here's the point of this psalm, and the psalmist knew what the point of his song was. The greatness and glory of the church can be summarized in three words. God is there. 
That's what makes the church glorious. He's there, faithfully there. In a word, what happens on Sundays is we are beholding his glory. Here in the ordinary gathering of believers, we know God, we dwell securely, and he makes us glad. Let's pray. Oh God, you are so good and your mercy endures forever and we are living witnesses of the steadfast love, the relentless grace of our God. Thank you for saving us. Thank you for redeeming us. Thank you for washing all of our sins away and putting them on Christ and providing him as a propitiation for our sins and then standing us before you in your awesome holiness with righteousness wrapped around us, not our own. Oh, what a wonder. May we sing and delight to keep singing in the midst of all that's average and normal in our local church gatherings, but may we sing our way home. May we sing the saints firm. May we sing the lost in. Do great things among your people for your glory. Amen. You've been listening to a message by Matt Mason given at the 2018 Worship God Conference held in Frisco, Texas. For more information on the conference, please visit worshipgodconference.com.